everyone. How are you this morning? I'm a little gimpy this morning. Last night I was playing with my dog at uh, 10.30 at night, and she's a Great Dane. And whatever you do with a Great Dane is always bigger, you know, everything's bigger. And um, uh, so we were, get, we were getting a little rough in our basement, and we have this game we play. She has this ball, and she gets it in her mouth, and I try to get it, and she drops it, and I try to kick it. And uh, so we were playing, and she drops the ball, and I went to kick it. And uh, I missed the ball, and I hit a set of 25-pound dumbbells. So uh, uh, I'm really the dumbbell, I guess. So, so I walked up this morning. I'm going up the stairs, and it hurts so bad. I fell up the stairs. So it's, it's not been a, a particularly um, graceful morning for me. So if I fall down, just pick me up and stick me back here. I'll be good. Well, I'm glad you guys are here. Um, why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles, if you have them, uh, to Mark chapter 2. If you need one to use, you should find one in one of the chair uh, racks down below you. Mark chapter 2, and today we're starting a new series we're calling DNA. What is that about? Well, as most of you no doubt recall from your days in high school science class, uh, every living thing on earth has a genetic blueprint of what it's going to look like and what it's going to act like. And the letters DNA refer to deoxyribonucleic acid, you know, a molecule that encodes the genetic instruction used to uh, used in the development and functioning of all living or organisms. Dr. Francis uh, Collins, who's the director of the National Institute of Health, also the leader of the Human Genome Project out of Bethesda, Maryland, and interestingly enough, former atheist uh, turned Christian, explains it this way in his book entitled The Language of God. He says, I've led a consortium of scientists to read out the 3.1 billion letters of the human genome our own DNA instruction book. As a believer, I see DNA, the information molecule of all living things, as God's language, and the elegance and complexity of our own bodies and the rest of nature as a reflection of God's plan. Here's my Ray K summary of that. Collins is saying that our individual DNA is what makes each of us so incredibly unique as living, breathing human beings created in the image of a loving God. And with that being true, I started thinking that if every living uh, organism has its own DNA, you know, its own a unique blueprint of what it's going to look like, what it's going to act like, wouldn't the same be true of an individual church, which despite the opinion of some is not merely an organization, but an or, a living organism made up of human beings? It seems to me the answer to that is yes, that as a church, there are going to be things that God sort of encodes into our spiritual DNA that make us unique, not better than others, not worse than others, just unique. And so uh, over the next few weeks, I want to identify and talk about certain things that make us, Parkview, who we are, you know, things we believe, things that we're committed to, things that we value, things that God has woven into our ecclesiastical genome, if you will. For the sake of uh, clarity, we've tried to capture these things in simple, easy-to-remember language. So here are the topics we're going to be exploring. People matter, ridiculous generosity, everyday worship, better together, relevant teaching, everybody does. Each of these phrases reflect an important aspect of Parfu's spiritual DNA. You know, who we are, what we're about, why we do what we do. And this morning, I want to, uh, I want to talk with you about this idea that people matter. But before we do, let's pray. Our Father, I'm thankful again for uh, the opportunity f- uh, to be together this morning. And um, I pray that, uh, Lord, I just pray that in the, in, the, in the time that we have left here, that you would, you would allow us, you would give us the ability to put aside the things that perhaps are on our mind about the upcoming week or about responsibilities this afternoon or what's happening. I pray that you would help us uh, put those things aside and, and be able to focus on you and that you would open our ears, our hearts, our minds, that we might hear what you have to say. Help us to be honest about who we are. I have the courage to be honest. And um, 
And so we ask you to do that for, for us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm guessing that most of us in the room would agree with the idea that all people matter to God. All people. I mean, we just, we just celebrated Christmas, right? And the message of Christmas is that God so loved the world, and not just a, a certain group of people, or not a certain class of people, but that God loved the world so much he gave his one and only son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And I'm thinking most of us, if not all of us, would agree on that. And because all people matter to God... I think most of us would also agree that people should matter to us as well. In fact, that's really what Jesus was getting at when he said to his followers, love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. Now, I'm assuming that most Christian churches would affirm these two uh, foundational biblical beliefs, that all people matter to God, all people should matter to us. And certainly, you know, by way of Jesus, God has demonstrated, he has proven uh, his part of the equation. But how do we know for sure if we're holding up our side? Christian author and thinker Oz Guinness just published uh, this new book called Renaissance, The Power of the Gospel, However Dark the Times. And I've been reading it. It's an interesting book. And in it, he discusses many of the issues and challenges that are, that are facing the Western church moving into the future. And one of the things that he mentions as sort of an aside deal, but it caught my, it caught my attention. I thought this is, this is pretty important stuff. He mentions the challenge of honest assessment. And he he says, for a generation now, countless Christian leaders and writers have liberally sprinkled their speeches, sermons, and books with phrases such as making a difference, leaving a legacy, transforming culture, changing the world. But for every thousand who have used the phrases as self-evident, there have been few who ask whether such change was actually happening and why and how they believed it could. In other words, Guinness says, a lot of Christians have been talking about making a difference in the world, in their culture, and are, 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 are pretty optimistic regarding their impact, but rarely do they look at the evidence to determine whether they're actually having an impact, spiritually speaking. According to Guinness, there are some pessimists out there who say, you know, for all the talk, the highly touted world change is simply not happening. Well, in a parallel way, I think it's easy for a church to say with, with, with a great sense of optimism, well, of course people matter to us. Yet for all the talk, is it true? How do we know? What's the evidence? What does it look like when people matter to us? So when I, I was reading this section of the book and I started thinking through that question, I just couldn't, I couldn't help but, but think back to one of my favorite stories in the New Testament. It's a pretty well-known story. It's about, it's about a few guys who proved that people mattered to them. Uh, Matthew, Luke, and Mark all record the story. I'll, I'll read Mark's version of it in his biography of Jesus. In chapter 2, he records how Jesus was staying in the city, city of Capernaum for a while, and uh, most scholars believe that he was actually staying in Peter's house. And when people heard that he was there, a huge crowd shows up the, uh, at the house. They pile inside. The religious experts go in first. They get the best seats. Everybody else crowded behind. People are spilling out into the street. Everybody was there to see Jesus and to hear him teach. And as he was teaching, just this crazy thing happens. We're told four men came to the house carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. And Mark says, since they couldn't get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they climbed on the house. They made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. And Mark says the, 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 the teachers of the law, the, the religious experts who were sitting inside, started thinking to themselves, you know, why does Jesus talk like that? You know, he's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Mark says Jesus knew what they were thinking. And he turned to them and he said, why are you thinking these things? Which is, which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? 
but that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And Mark and Luke and Matthew all record that the guy got up and he walked out, and everyone was amazed and started praising God, saying, we've never seen anything like this before. Now, one of the things that I love so much about the story that it kind of it compels me to go back and read it again just for my own benefit is because it's so weird. It's odd. It's, it's unorthodox. I mean, the behavior of these men shattered accepted normal religious protocol of the day. Obviously, you know, Jesus is at the center of the story, and what happens reveals his grace, his, his authority, and his power. But the other part of the story that we shouldn't miss is about this handful of guys who demonstrate what it, what it looks like when someone matters to you and what you're willing to do because of it. For example, these men were willing to love this guy more than most people thought realistic. You know, and, 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 and keep in mind, Mark doesn't say they were carrying someone's father, someone's son, someone's brother or best friend. This was a stranger. More than likely, this parallel man was, a paralyzed man was, was a poor social outcast who spent his days begging in the streets of Capernaum or some, wherever, he, wherever he was. The, and these guys saw him. They saw his need. They have compassion on the, on the guy. And they, they decide this person matters. And so they pick him up and carry him to Jesus. Now, some of us, when we read the story, we kind of, we kind of balk at that. And we think there's no way. That, there's no way that could have happened. The guy must have been related to or at least friends with somebody in the group. Why do we think that? I think... I think it's because for many of us, the the idea of caring that much for someone outside of our family, outside of our circle of friends, our social strata, even our faith tradition just doesn't seem realistic. I mean, some of us might be willing to carry a buddy or a cousin. Uh, Some of us might be willing to carry the person we live next door to, but some poor marginalized street cripple, a stranger, not so much. And that's what makes these guys so unique. I mean, they actually cared more about this person than other people thought made sense. They realized this man, this poor man, not only had, a, had physical and material needs, but, but, but spiritual needs as well. And so they were willing to carry him to the one person, the only person they thought could help him. So here's a question. Do people matter that much to us individually and as a church? And if so, how do we demonstrate that to to the people around us, to our community, to our world? How, how do we love those who are hurting and, and have physical, material, and spiritual needs? Do we care enough to actually do something? Who have we helped? Who have we carried? Who have we thought about carrying? Do we even know someone who needs to be carried? The sad reality is that too many churches in America are filled with individuals who have a hard enough time carrying themselves to God, let alone carrying broken, hurting friends, not to mention complete strangers. But I tell you this, God is looking for people whose hearts break for the forgotten, for the marginalized, for the disenfranchised, for young girls held captive in the sex industry, for under-resourced students struggling in our school systems, for growing the growing homeless population of our, of our county. Not only that, God's looking for people whose hearts break for the highly successful businessman or woman living across the street who, 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 who have everything money can buy but whose, um, whose soul is bankrupt. I mean, God is looking for those of us who will think beyond ourselves, you know, and live lives characterized by radical acts of love extended toward all of these people, all of them, rich, poor, abused, addicted, black, white, healthy, paralyzed. It makes no difference. They all matter to God. Do they matter to us? That's the question. If they do, then we will we will commit to them and do more for them than others think necessary. Well, that's what true love is, isn't it? I mean, 
you know as well as I do, true love isn't just a warm, fuzzy feeling we get about someone. No, no, no. Love is, is commitment. True love is commitment expressed through self-sacrifice. It's, it's taking action for the benefit of another person. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul summarizes it quite, quite well. He says, Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, God, Paul says, God models for us what true love means. Active, sacrificial commitment. Tell me, what good would it do for us as a church if we hung a big giant banner out on our south wall facing St. Charles Road, uh, or if we took this giant banner and we walked it through the streets of, of, our, of, our, of our communities uh, saying, that says, you know, here we are, we're Christians. We're Christians and we're compassionate people. We're caring people. God, God loves all of you and so do we. What good would that do? I'll tell you what it would do. No good. No good whatsoever. Because love is not measured by the words we speak or the claims we make. It's measured more by the actions we take. And see, here is the reality. If we're going to love people as Jesus commanded, we're going to have to, <laughs> we're going to, have to keep doing things to prove it. Because like it or not, our culture has become increasingly, increasingly skeptical of what the Christian church says because it doesn't always match what it does. If we want men and women to believe they matter to God and they matter to us, and we need to love them by doing something for them, something helpful, something compassionate, something unexpected. I mean, look at the guys in the story. They, they saw this man, they recognized his need, and then they, they did something. So here's another question. Who do you know on your block, in your apartment complex, at your workplace, in your classroom, in your neighborhood, someone you come in contact with on a regular basis, who, who, has, a, who has a significant need? Physical, material, spiritual. Think about it. If you can't come up with a name, then you need to get out more. Which I tell you what is true of a lot of Christians and a lot of churches. It's true of it's true of pastors. We need to get out. We need to get out of our buildings and our meetings and, and engage culture and needy people. Uh, not too long ago, I was invited by uh, a couple clergy members in the area to join them in an ongoing uh, Thursday meeting about quote-unquote evangelism and how we can do it better in our world and how da 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 And I went to one of the meetings, and it was, it was okay. You know, the, the, the people there were wonderful people. But I, in the end, I said, I told one of them, I, I, you know, I can't, I can't really commit to this. And I said, I'll be really honest with you. I think we would do better to get out of our meetings and do something for someone. But if you guys come up with a great idea, let me know. I'm happy to, you know. But I said, I, I just, you know, I, I just want to be out doing things, not, not sitting in meetings. Because here's the thing. Pastors, it doesn't matter. Christians, uh, we can't just go around thinking about or talking about loving those in our community and our world. We have to commit to doing something. There's a lot of talk today in, in Christian circles about young people leaving the church. Disen, they're disheartened with the church and blah, 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 this, that. This, that. I, I tell you why one of the biggest reasons... I think young people are, are discouraged with the church or those in their 20s. Or, I think it's because the church has a, talks a big game but doesn't really do that much. And I think young Christians, they're saying, hey, we want to make a difference in the world. So if you're not going to do it, then we'll do it, we'll do it on our own. I don't think they should be criticized for that or chastised for it. I think they should be applauded frankly. We can't just talk about things. We can't just think about loving people in our world and our community. We have to commit to doing something. 
And that's what the guys in the story did. But for them, the question wasn't just who to love, but how to actually do it, right? So they dream bigger than a lot of people thought practical. They devised this crazy plan uh, to carry a paralyzed man on a mat to Jesus. We don't know how far they had to carry him. Could have been, uh, could have been a few blocks, could have been a couple miles. We don't know. But I don't think that was important to them. What was important was a dream of helping this guy. And the task of carrying him was made easier by a shared vision of what might happen if they could actually get him to Jesus. And so distance wasn't an issue, you know, weight wasn't an issue, but there were some other obstacles they had to overcome because when they get at the house, there's so many people there, they couldn't even see Jesus. And I'll be honest with you, I probably would have been, oh, well, you know, sorry, paralyzed person. We tried, you know, we, good luck. We, we did our best, but uh, obviously this isn't going to work. Not these guys. No, 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 no. For them, the dream was too big to let go of. They weren't going to let... They weren't going to let anything keep them from doing what they were compelled to do. And so these dreamers were willing to get a little, a little crazy and do something unexpected, something unorthodox. They took a risk. You know, they risked more than others thought was safe. No one else was up on a roof. These guys go. They climb up. The, not only they climb on it, but they do it carrying a man on a mat, which obviously couldn't have, been, it couldn't have been easy. One or two of them couldn't have done it alone. It was a team effort. And as they were climbing and, and struggling to get up there, I'm, uh, I'm wondering what the people on the ground were thinking. How were they reacting? I got to believe some were yelling at them like, what are you guys doing? What are you out of your mind? You're crazy. Get off the roof. The religious folks were probably saying, this isn't part of the liturgy. It's not in the bulletin. What's going on? You know, the safety conscious were afraid the crippled man was going to s- slip off the mat and fall. The fiscal conservatives were f- trying to figure out how, mat- how much the mat costs. You know, uh, the politically minded were brainstorming what legislation could get passed to keep this from ever happening again. Uh, the traditionalists were screaming, this isn't how we do things around here. In fact, I wonder if somebody tried to stop them, you know, because was it safe? No, it wasn't. Was it risky? Absolutely, it was risky. But these guys weren't afraid to break tradition. They weren't afraid to break tradition. They weren't afraid to take a chance for the sake of someone who needed to meet Jesus. Frankly, I love their creativity. I love it. Just this week, I heard an educator tell the story of a class of six-year-olds who were told by their teacher to draw a picture, any picture they wanted. And so they started, and the teacher noticed this little little girl in the back just scribbling away on a piece of paper. So she goes back and she says to the little girl, what are you drawing? And the little girl says, I'm drawing a picture of God. And the teacher said, but nobody knows what God looks like. And the little girl said, they will in a minute. (laughs) Is that awesome? And I heard the story and it reminds me how children, children don't have traditions, you know, they're not, they're, they're willing to, to, they're willing to take chances on things. They're not afraid of failing. They're not afraid of being wrong. And that, that's not to say that failure or being wrong is the same thing as being creative, but, but here's the reality. If we're not prepared to fail, if we're not prepared to be wrong, then we'll never come up with anything original or try anything new. And unfortunately, by the time most of us become adults, we have lost the capacity and the courage to be creative. But the guys on the roof were amazingly creative. They were fearlessly creative. They realized this man's need to get to Jesus was greater than their need to be safe and conventional. And they were willing to risk, to climb, despite any ridicule that they were getting from those who were safe below, including the religious guys. And every time I go back and I read this story, I can't help but think that sometimes we in the church can be a lot more like the critics on the ground than the guys on the roof. As Christians, we observe and acknowledge every single day. I mean, the world is a messed up place. We all know it. We see it every day. And, 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 and 
we see then acknowledge the physical, the material, the spiritual needs of our world, the people around us, but often settle for the status quo rather than being creative and taking some risks to actually help somebody and make a difference. We'd rather be safe, comfortable spectators. And I hate to say it, but the Christian church in America is overflowing with people who talk about loving others. You know, we, we have PhDs who lecture on it, students who study it, theologians who write about it, pastors who preach on it, experts who research it, Christian leaders who travel across the globe to discuss loving others in Jesus' name. But will any of us risk walking across the street to actually do it? That is the big question. I mean, let's face it. There is sometimes a subtle selfishness behind our avoidance of risk-taking. There's a hypocrisy that lets us take risks every day for ourselves but paralyzes us from taking risks for others. But that's where these guys were different. They They didn't stand around talking about loving someone, lecturing about it, writing about it, you know, getting this guy to Jesus. They got creative. They, they took a risk. They climbed the roof. They did something. And, and, and another big part of the reason for that was because they had big expectations. You know, They expected more of God than other people thought reasonable. In verse 4, we're told they dig through the roof uh, of this house. And I just imagine you know, the sticks flying, the dust falling. They lower this paralyzed man on a mat right in front of Jesus. And it's fascinating to me. Jesus doesn't condemn them for taking the risk. He doesn't rebuke them for creative, uh, unconventional methods or for making a mess. Instead, he saw their faith, and Jesus says to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. And he heals the guy, first spiritually in verse 5, and then physically in verse 11. And it's real real easy, whenever we read this story, to, to miss an important point. That is, Jesus saw their faith. You know, he saw the faith of these outside-of-the-box, non-traditional compassionate, creative guys. And keep in mind, these, I mean, we're not talking about well-groomed religious experts here. These guys didn't stop and think uh, whether or not digging, through the, digging a hole through the roof uh, during a, a religious service is normal. You know, is that a good thing? Is that not a good thing? They weren't, they weren't worried about that. They weren't theologians who could recite all the immutable characteristics of God or list all the, the, the religious rules and rituals of the day. They simply knew that if they loved this guy and if they could get him to Jesus, great things were going to happen. And so everything they did, everything they did was because they expected the Son of God to do something big, something miraculous. Their faith in Jesus set them apart from the crowd. It set them apart from the religious professionals who sat comfortably down inside listening to Jesus teach, which in some respects indicates to me that sometimes those who are closest to Jesus expect the least from him. How much do we expect from God as individuals and as a church? Do we expect him to do big things, great things? I mean, look, many of us, not all of us, but many of us are well-groomed church goers. You know what I mean? We can, we can recite the songs, we can talk the theology, we can quote Bible verses and all of it. But until, I tell you what, but until we actually believe what we're saying, that God is all-powerful, all-loving, all-gracious, that people matter to him, all people matter to him, until we believe Jesus is able to have an eternal supernatural impact on a person's life, until we really believe that, we're going to stay on the ground criticizing creativity, huddled in the house, stuck in our seats, mired in fear, just part of the safe, traditional, religious crowd, going nowhere. That's not what I want to do with the rest of my life. It's not what we want to do as a church. We want to be different, not different for different sake, but we want, we want to dream big. We want to take some risks. 
not be afraid to fail, not to be, you know, we, we want to try new things. We want to get a little messy, kick up some dust for the sake of people who need God. Because I'm convinced that's the way God wants us to be. I mean, seriously. As Christ followers in the midst of a spiritually crippled, crippled and secularized culture, playing it safe just isn't right anymore. It's not. Our world's a mess. And so there are times we can't be completely practical, rational, traditional, conventional, safe. God never asks us to be those things, you realize. He never asks us to be those things. He calls us to be people of faith, and faith motivates creative and out-of-the-box behavior. And I believe if we're willing to, 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 to be different, like the guys in the story, to try new things and expect God to do big things and miraculous things and change people's lives, that he will do it. He promises to respond to our faith. And when he does, then like the men in the story, we'll get a chance to celebrate more than most people think possible. Mark reports that when Jesus saw the faith of these, faith of these men, he said to the paralytic, get up, take your mat and go home. And, and, and he did it in front of the whole crowd. Mark says it amazed everybody. And they all started praising God saying, we have never seen anything like this before. Here's my Ray K summary. It got crazy. It was crazy. It was a crazy scene as, as God's power was revealed. Tell me, do you think most of the people on the ground or the religious experts in the house that day had any idea what was going to happen? I don't think so. Mark says, to their own admission, they, they were amazed. They had never seen anything like it. They probably never even expected anything like it. But when the power of God was revealed, that, that crippled man got up and he walked. And I guarantee you, their, their expectations changed. And suddenly that sedate congregation got excited. It got loud. It got inspired and began to genuinely celebrate and worship God for his power, for his goodness, for his grace. I tell you, it would have been cool to be there. Can you imagine what it was like in the house? Imagine what it was like on the roof. The digging had stopped. The dancing had started because Jesus, Jesus did what four crazy guys believed he could do. He gave new life to a dying person. Imagine what God might do if an entire church believed the same thing and lived accordingly. Listen, I'm the first to admit, I've, I have got a long way to go when it comes to loving others as much as I love myself because I love myself a lot. And don't laugh, you love yourself a lot as well. We all do, right? We all do. Let's just face it. Let's call it what it is. We all love ourselves a lot. It's part of our human brokenness. And to be honest, the, the whole idea of loving other people, especially strangers who are different, is, a, is just a radical concept. It sounds a little crazy. But the Apostle Paul explained it this way to the church. He says, you know what? We revere the Lord. And if we're out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. For Christ's love compels us, and we're convinced that one died for all, and therefore those who live should no longer live for themselves. Here's my Ray K summary. When God gets a hold of our lives, when we experience, really experience His love and grace and understand it, we start, we start thinking differently, we start acting differently, using our talents differently, spending our time and our money differently. And at some point along the way, people on the outside are going to look at us and say, what are you guys, crazy? Are you out of your minds? To which our reply is, if we are, it's because God has invaded our world and his love and his grace has touched our lives. And so we're not, we're not just out for ourselves anymore. As God's people, as a church, we're living to help and serve others in the name of Jesus in hopes of bringing people to Jesus and expecting God to do great things. Call us crazy, but we're going to be crazy about what matters most in this world. And that's people. Let's pray together. Our Father, the reality is um, we love ourselves a lot. We put ourselves first in most things. And the idea of loving others more than ourselves just, it kind of, it runs against our, our broken 
natural inclinations. And it's not an easy thing to imagine doing. And yet when we experience your love and grace through Jesus, it it, it changes us from the inside out. And we're in the process of becoming more loving toward others, more generous, more compassionate, where we're willing to take risks and dream big, expect more. Our Father, as Os Guinness mentions in his book, the church has spent a lot of time talking about having an impact in the world and changing culture. The question is, is it really happening? And even today, as a church, as individuals, we can talk about impacting lives and loving others, but are we really doing it? That's the question. Give us the courage to be honest. And if we're not, forgive us. If we are, then empower us to do it even more so. Because our world needs Jesus more than ever. The brokenness is just so evident every single day. The world needs to know your love and grace. And thank you that in Jesus you have forgiven our sin. You have freed us to live. But not just live for ourselves, but to live for others. You freed us to do that. And so may we, uh, may we be the kind of people that truly make a difference.